Hello, I'm Alex Otaro. And I'm Alex Goldstein. We're a couple of TV nerds with opinions. And this is the thing that gets you to the thing. A Hot and Catch Fire fan podcast. This week, we're on season one, episode nine, called Up Hillier. And what happens in Vegas is exactly what we're going to talk about. By now, you know, we're re-watching this show episode by episode, digging into everything we find interesting. If you're in the UK like us, you can watch the whole thing on Amazon Prime. It's also on a bunch of platforms in other places, I believe still on Netflix in the US. So there's a bunch of aggregator sites out there to find out where it could be near you. And I promise you won't regret tracking it down. Okay, then. Let's get everyone up to our suite and discuss what's going on this week. Which suite? I say our suite. Yeah, which suite are we're we going to? We're in two to? different towns <laughs> <laughs> because there's still a pandemic and there's nothing anyone can do about that. Oh, man. Which suite do we want? You want the expensive one or you want the uh, swindled uh, revenge one? I'll take the one with the free shrimp. Thank you. Uh <laughs> oh, so tacky. <laughs> So, okay, let's let's be real about this one because we've had, we try not to talk too much about these things before we record so that we don't lose some of the spontaneity of the conversation. Yeah. But I think we both kind of went, eh, We were so excited about this. We, and we wanted to make it a thing, didn't we? It's like, let's go to convex type thing. And I was actually so yeah. disappointed at like just how dull and boring that bit was. <laughs> uh, uh, so I, as you know, well, those listening won't know, but you know, I have been to CES. I have reported from CES. Uh, and CES is pretty much what replaced Comdex. And it is still the case that it runs back to back with an adult entertainment show, by the way. <laughs> so that is still a thing that happens. Amazing. Uh, although there were considerably, even in 2009, eight or nine, I forget which, when I was there, uh, it was already considerably less likely for there to be booth babes knocking around. They they still do them, but it's it's a bit less uh, obvious. Oh, you haven't had the pleasure of going to a casino exhibition in London in 2020. But <laughs> but anyway, we'll leave that one for a different I mean, podcast. In some way, what I what I will give this episode credit for doing is that weird balance where you have a lot of people in one place all like there are exciting things about it right so i'd never been to vegas before i actually haven't been since uh it's on somebody else's dime right so you're like well i'm in the place with the hotels and the casinos and the food i mean i'm like like not super into the drinking and definitely not super into the porn stars so you know there was a limit to how, uh, how how broad my mind was going to be about the whole thing uh but you know, it's sort of exciting and ridiculous and really flashy. And I mean, while I was there, I was like, oh, look, a hotel with a lion in the middle of it. it seems legit. Uh, so there's that. But at the same time, it is absolutely a work trip to talk about um, technology and to talk about some really nerdy details that only get certain people excited. And I remember the big thing when I was sorry, this is turning into a podcast of my memories now, but I promise you this will be brief. Uh, the big thing that happened when I arrived uh, at CES was that that was the week that Blu-ray won, right? right? And the other HD DVD format or HD DVD format, as it was, uh, decided like Panasonic decided to give up the ghost that week. Uh, and so everybody was sort of like, oh, my God, we've got to write all these things. That's like nobody outside of this bubble 
cared at all no what the winner of this like whipped up format war was going to be other than people who were investing in one or the other i suppose um and i one thing this did get right was this sense of this anticlimactic sense of like the excitement it's so you know you've got donna and gordon in the car building up this like and then you do this and it's the parties and the sweets and there are all the insider information and for once it's them whipping up the excitement and and joe's actually quite calm about the whole thing yeah yeah um but it is slightly anticlimactic because at the end of the day it's just a fancy version of what donna did in lubbock you know it's just a fancy conference with people selling stuff and it, it's that weird balance of like professional excitement personal silliness people going out and grabbing bits of the hoover dam or whatever <laughs> and and this like oh it's a bunch of people in sad rooms with warm shrimp yeah um, and porn the, stars the, there was something to that like i think it got that weird sense of climax and anticlimax quite right i'm glad you brought up the ces thing just because when watching this i was i wasn't born in the 80s uh i do apologize for that um i have had conversations with my mother about this no i haven't I kind of feel nostalgic for everything that's going on there. And, you know, this show has always been about cutting edge technology and sort of the cusp of a new discovery that can really have a, like, I mean, huge impact on society. So hearing you talk about how these, you know, nerds, and I totally throw myself in the same bucket because I'm the one that reads all these stories and watches all the live streams and, 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 and comments on all the trolls. But... It's great that the that that level of excitement still sort of exists, even though technology has been uh, has become a mainstream, really, where we we truly understand like the potential of it, and you know, um, it's become even flatter because it's been commercialized to death to the point where the yearly refresh cycles don't really bring the innovation. And I totally agree with you that the that it, it did feel like sort of like a sad, almost pitch your own tent type of hole and. I grew up in Florida and I have walked down exhibition halls after exhibition halls of the most random things you can think of. And so it did totally capture that artificial lighting, brown, beige, uh, you know, yellowish folder look that we talk about. Yeah, I got to say, by the time I got to the exhibition floor, they definitely like invested some money in making it much more attractive and certainly yeah i mean like it became a sexy industry yeah the the industry tech had become much sexier and the industry was a lot is a lot shinier now than uh than it used to be and that yeah that has changed but the sense of the sense of being able to tell quite quickly that some things are going nowhere like the two guys with the printer and you're just like, oh man, just give it up. You're clearly here year after year with, with this, this fax machine. Okay fax machine from hell um and the sense of the other things where there's like a bun fight for tiny differences that are going to push you over the edge um and then somebody will come in and just change everything and it was interesting that i guess in in an episode that and to jump to the end an episode that is going to end with the introduction of the Macintosh, which has this graphical user interface, which we've been talking about for weeks now, is we know that's going to disrupt the industry in a big way. Um, 
But also there's a reference earlier on to uh, Windows and Donna brushes it aside as like, yeah, yeah, but it's full of bugs. And then, of course, there's Joe's big, big speech moment where they decide to gut the giant and go with its leanest form at where he's like, it's a machine. It's not going to be your friend. It's going to do what you want as fast as possible. And I guess the the yeah, I guess the feeling that you're supposed to get from that is that Apple has won. And certainly Apple is tremendously dominant. But I think people forget how many people still use PCs, how many people still use Windows or something like it. We've got used to the idea that Apple won and that was it and they walked off with a prize. But I don't know about you, but I'm recording on a on a not Mac <laughs> right now. Um, and it's it it sometimes is cast as this. Mac is the future, PC is the past, but it's never, ever been as simple as that. No, and we know that technology is a lot more nuanced than just a black and white. You can have this box or you can have that one, right? That's the whole point around how do you differentiate a product and who is it aimed at? I, and going to that specific reveal, you know, it was in one of the suites. It was kind of like in the similar crowd to what they had in theirs the night before. It wasn't something that was like on a major stage. And we know we know why, right? Like they clearly mm-hmm. walk us through the dynamic of Comdex, which is sort of like hype up all the nerds and then um, get them to your booth and, 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 and put the sales onwards that way. But I thought there was mi- mixed messaging or I guess missed opportunities to really identify what the success factors were going to be for them to be successful, right? Was it going to be the, those sales? Because when Joe gets approached by this guy and goes, I'll, you know, I'll buy 70K worth, you're like, okay, is that good? Because mm-hmm. you guys are just four random guys now without Cardiff Electric. We don't see any stance by IBM, right? If you think about episodes one and two, where we were inundated with IBM lawyers, you would think that the blue suits would be walking around everywhere. You would think that Joe McMillian... McMillan Sr. would be roaming around the halls. Mm. Certainly not Hunt. Or maybe Hunt with a blue suit would have been a nice sort of uh, reference to to the initial scenes. Yeah, it's funny that they kind of dress Hunt in that awful beige color that really old-fashioned computers come in. <laughs> you know, the like horrible beige plastic. That's what he's wearing. And it, I mean, it it's an effort to make... Scott Michael Foster look that bland, but man, they try. They try really hard. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's a really good sign, like a visual, very clear visual sign that he's not representing anything new. Like it's absolutely hammered in by the script as well. Like we're, we, we're not allowed to even begin to think that he might be, you know, it really is just there to go. He is um, a bit of a grifter. He saw an opportunity, he grabbed it, he moved in, but he's got nothing new to offer. In some ways, it reminds me of, um, for the Hamilton fans out there, it reminds me of Aaron Burr's trajectory where it's like, you know, I saw an opportunity, the opportunity was there and I took it, but he doesn't have anything new to offer. He doesn't have any ideas of his own. Uh, And so ultimately, that's the seeds of his own destruction of the lack of, is the lack of um, ability to, to see, to project into the future at all. But while we're on the hunt thing, I still don't know whether that added 
enough to make it worth it. I think it was completely out of character. And also with Brian, yeah. the neighbor, it's like, who else are you going to throw in there? Donna's mom while you're at it or um, her dad against Gordon? Like, it, it was just, I, th- I thought it was completely ridiculous. It does sort of explain why Hunt was wandering around yeah. the the driveway. Now we understand that, that he was actually there to see the neighbor. And that's why he feels so flustered and weird. And it had nothing to do with Donna. But someone who is telling Donna constantly that to bind her own business within the business doesn't strike me as a Joe that will instantly capitalize on an idea. Like, oh, you received a fax and you looked at that and suddenly you quit your company where you were high up just to grab some random person and do it. In fact, I would have expected the opposite. I would have expected for him to play Donna more, go along with her advances to then lead up to this point where it's a proper betrayal. Yeah. I also, I mean, the fact that he never actually has it out with Donna, like she flies at him, they pull her off, they never actually talk again after that. And his big moment. Which Carrie Bichet won the episode. She really did. So Carrie Bichet appreciation moment in capital letters with stars around it. She really did. I literally, you can't see my notes, but I wrote like Carrie Bichet in capital, I wrote Carrie Bichet in capital letters and it's the Mac. And I also wrote, you can see it on my screen. Um, Those of you can't, sorry, you can't see I also wrote so tacky in uh, capital letters for a lot of the episode. <laughs> uh, did Sorry, I write anything? Your thought. I feel like I did write. Oh, yeah. You know what I wrote in capital letters? We'll come back to this, but it is what it Warm does. Warm shrimp. <laughs> yes. It is what it does. But no, I, I like that scene with Hunt is clearly supposed to tell us something about Joe, but it's nothing we don't already know. Like it's it's hammering in a point that doesn't need hammering in. And to to that extent, it just felt a little bit fillery. And I, so this episode was written by uh, Jason Cahill. And the last time we saw a Jason Cahill episode was episode three, High Plains Hardware. Uh, It feels very much like he gets landed with the transitional (laughs) episodes where he has to take people from point A to point B. And the overwhelming feeling I had about this episode was that it was in a way, unfair to judge it on its own because it really feels like an episode-long setup for whatever's coming next. Um, I can't 100% remember what happens next. I remember some big bits, but I don't remember a lot of the detail of the season finale, which is great. Having watched this, I know that if I were just watching it, re-watching it for the sake of re-watching it, I would have absolutely barreled straight into the next one to find out what Joe's reaction to the Mac is going to mean for everything. Um, And in that sense, I feel slightly, I stopped on purpose because I find if I watch them back to back before we talk about them, then I start to blur things into one and I start to project forward too much. And I don't want to do that because it's not really fair on the, on the podcast. Uh, But this one on its own felt like it was there to build up to a finale rather than to do anything very useful Apart from maybe one thing. I almost wish this was the finale because Mm. I mentioned in our previous episode how episode eight felt like it could have been a finale from having so many elements that elevate and finally bring everyone on the same path. Um, And funny enough, I mean, one of the things that I noticed from frame one of the episode is that they're all together. Finally, we're doing the the morning routine where it's Mm -hmm. four of them on the road, sort of like being themselves, heading into this potential adventure. Now, 
the issue that we have with the episode from my point of view is the lack of objective that doesn't necessarily provide the structure to get to where they want to get to. It was slow at times, a bit clumsy, and very much like we saw in episode two and maybe episode three, I felt like if the conflict would have been introduced from the beginning, like, okay, we were we were sort of getting hints that things weren't going to go as planned, right? Like their suite was taken and their booth was taken and the, the credit cards get bounced and all that stuff. And the demo didn't work, right? Like we were setting them up to to fail. However, the conflict with the clone, and forget about the, the reveal in the end, I think it could have been a lot more interesting if it did take an episode two approach where the IBM guys come from, from the first 10, 15 minutes. And so that unravels throughout the rest of the episode. Now, I do think that it did accomplish a few things, mostly in... in I'm talking Gordon Donna territory where they finally have it out, even though Gordon was a bit, I wouldn't say out of character, but I would say surprisingly blunt in some of his claims that were quite unfair towards Donna. Yes. In my eyes. I but I would agree that it's not out of character because we know that Gordon is has a tendency to be very single-minded and rather self-centered. And that he he sort of relentlessly fails to recognize Donna's value until after something bad has happened. Once the bad thing has happened and she's bailed him out, then he sees her value. He never sees it without prompting. The one thing I thought this episode did do really well, I'm not sure it was needed, not sure it needed to do it, but it did it, was establish Gordon as an ongoing second center for the show. So we've talked about this being a really strong ensemble before. Um, it is a very strong ensemble. The, I can say, I think, without spoilers, that it's going to go on to continually shift focuses between characters. Um, but up until now, it has reverted back to Joe on a regular basis. It's always refound it, its sort of North Star and Joe. And in this episode, because Gordon has been building in the last two episodes, so he had his sort of semi-breakdown and then we had his moment where he comes forward and he gets the clarity. gang together, his moment of clarity. And in this episode, he really, really is carved out as a potential other ongoing focus for the show in a really clear way. And the bit that really hammered that in for me was after the revel after Hunt's revelation, when Gordon is sitting at that table in the hotel room and Joe comes in behind him and sort of says, look, here they've sold it to so-and-so. Joe is never in focus for any of that speech. Uh, it's no. all the focus yeah. is on Gordon. And um, then it's his reaction. And he is the one that sort of still manages to turn the machine into something that can sell. Um, it, he he really is being set up now as a potential other locus. And I don't know at this point, I'm guessing at this point in the process, they might have had an idea of whether they were getting a season two or not. I actually still don't know. I Look, they're, they're always going to be planting the seeds, yeah. right? And we we kind of saw this with Cameron's interactions with the guy from wherever California he was from, or, talking about yeah. California and Palo Alto and like, look at those things. Joe saying you should go. Like, clearly they're trying to drive something there. And who knows, with the Mac involvement, whatever. But yeah, I agree with you that Gordon really stood out. And one of the things that I noticed was that actually everyone is more in their element in a more confident way. You have Cameron sort of pulling her shenanigans in a way that actually draws attention to what they need to and really doing 
a lot with not much that little like yeah you want to see the giant sort of um thing that she did well and it also harks back to the story of the giant's origin right so the giant name yeah. came from a pt barnum story which was basically a a con a story, it was a story yeah, exactly. of, a, of a con and so she is sort of pulling a benign con herself yeah and talking about cons joe really showing off his conmanship uh if that's even a word around everything he's doing actually one of the things that i noticed was that when they arrive in the hotel and i thought it was really fun it's sort of set up like a like an Ocean's Eleven type action film where everyone's sort of coming in from different angles. You have the very low shots of the, that show off like the interior of the hotel in a very sleek way. And I thought that was quite fun because mm-hmm. it is it is kind of a mission for them. And I guess that's where I'm disappointed that the episode didn't deliver from that point of view just because it felt like it faltered throughout. So it doesn't feel like a mission because above and beyond whether they failed or not because it wasn't clear if they failed or not because... Just because the Macintosh exists doesn't mean that their product won't sell. And I thought that's what they wanted to do. And again, like I, I think we we briefly talked about this, but removing stripping essentially the camera elements out of the machine, um, out of you know, which Gordon uh, did in that scene, I felt it was a bit of a betrayal to what the show was building up to, and 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 how those moments were the ones that have pivoted Joe into a more likable character or not even a more likable character but just a more well-rounded character when it comes to I'm not just some some dick that runs over animals in the middle of the street I'm sorry I'm laughing because instead of seagulls we now have my cat trilling in the background (laughs) we have a a guest appearance from Casper sorry guys (laughs) um he's always welcome so I, I agree I feel like that that focus on Gordon was long overdue. And actually another thing that I noticed was that when they are giving their speech, they're finally on the same page. Gordon finally doesn't stick his foot in it to piss Joe off. Actually, they look at each other with approval and kind of like, yeah, yes. you've done that. Cool. I really, I that was one bit that I really liked was that finally, finally they have managed to sell something together. Like equal footing. And that, yeah, the little nod that they give each other. The two really kind of like emotional beats in the show that I loved were that and uh, and Joe taking Cameron's hand in the in the lift and all right Joe taking Cam- Cameron's hand is by far a more the more kind of emotionally manipulative of the two but I fell for it fell for it hard it was great they were they were lovely little beats and moments and I mean on those kind of details so it wasn't an easy job for whoever was going to direct this episode to keep the visuals on track because they're now completely out of their normal element. We've got scenes on the road. We've got an establishing shot of Vegas, which we... I was going to say of Vegas. We have never yeah, had... For the first we've time. We've never had an establishing shot of anywhere. Like, we've never had a single shot of Dallas or this or that, the other, and now we're, we're getting a shot of the strip. And I'm guessing that must have been um, either stock footage or, or I don't know how they did that to make it look like Vegas of the 80s. I think it was stock footage. You can tell there's some grain in the yeah. quality. And actually, there's a bit of grain throughout the episode because they really went in heavily on the on the yellow hues that are part of like the look and feel of it all and some of the lighting sources. But yeah, I think it was stock footage. And it, it worked well to what they wanted to accomplish. Absolutely. But in some ways, the the change of setting gives the director freedom to do some different things than they would usually do. But it also it feels less like 
an episode of the same show because everything, all the kind of visual touch points that we're used to aren't really there. Now, a different director again. So it's a director who hasn't been on the show before yet. Um, Terry McDonough. He's actually a British director and a pure play TV director. So he came from things like, um, I mean, he's done everything from peak practice to Breaking Bad. This uh, this man's been all over the the shop doing oh, all wow. sorts of things: Cold Feet, Clue, Killing Eve. Uh, he's he's really kind of been there, done that. Um, and he had, I thought, an unenviable job of trying to establish things we were familiar with while shaking everything up. And there were some bits I really liked, like you said, those the, the kind of Ocean's Eleven y scenes of them coming in with these big high sweeping shots and the camera sort of whizzing around. There's a few handheld bits, or at least it certainly look like handheld. There's actually quite a lot of handheld. Those guys are where their brothers are showing off the mm. glorified fax machine. There's a strange use of, um, and I say strange in relation to obviously all the other episodes, but there's a use of handheld on shots that would have normally been fixed mm. or stable. So I thought that was quite interesting and I'm trying to sort of leave a mark as to the urgency, I guess, of everything that was going on there, considering they're going from presentation to presentation. And yeah, I mean, I think it, it was a really interesting job to sort of come in and get them out of there. And actually, I thought the episode was quite harmonious in the way that, again, the lighting and some of those elements were presented Versus what we usually get, which is like the cold apartment here with a with a shimmer of of Cameron's light and the boring house that they live in. And for once, they're out in the real world outside of the bubble. So I thought that was quite fitting for the episode and kind of not understanding where they sort of fit. They're just because actually, if you think about it, what we're being told is that they're actually not special, that they're just one more, you know, group of people presenting someone. Yeah. And you can see it in the fact that they took over the other guy's uh, sort of warm shrimp. And, you know, they did some cool stuff with it. And I thought Joe was really mm. good at selling selling the dream, basically, which is why I was annoyed that towards the end of the episode, we, he's flipped. Because he could have really, he could have sold it in, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but sorry, going back to points around direction. I think he did something really interesting, although I don't necessarily think it broke the mold in any shape or form based on what we've seen so far. No. There was one bit that stood out for me that felt classic Halt and Catch Fire in a way, um, unlike much of the rest of it. But that was the scene where you have the two couples uh, in their various rooms and at some point half of their conversation takes place in the mirror. So in the case of Gordon and Donna, it's because he gets up, walks over and, you know, as, as they're as in that relationship, Donna is in the mirror because they're I, I guess she's the one on the outside trying to be pulled in. And then on the other side of the wall, you have the flip side of that. And it's mostly Joe who's in the mirror and he's sort of not trying to hold on to Cameron. He's telling her to get out there and go and do her own thing. Uh, but she is then trying to pull him back. And that those scenes felt quite quintessentially of the show with the use of reflection, which has just been this really common theme that's pushed through it. It's just that some of the, I mean, it was just some of the the conference scenes, because they had to be, are big, busy, cold, white shots. And some of those just, they felt very new to the show. And I thought that it's really difficult to integrate those into the thing. It, it is done well, but it's just a tricky job 
No, I, I agree with you. I mean, I feel like things were done well. I just mean coming off a, a handful of episodes mm. with like dream sequences and really abstract conceptual stuff. I agree with you that the conference scenes are tricky to pull off in an innovative way. Although there were elements to continue to add to your observations that when you're in a, on a wider shot, camera does tilt even more drastically than before. You also have a few elements that, for example, after the initial night where they all come to check out the this the giant, but the demo doesn't turn on and Donna and Gordon are mm. fighting. The frames are sort of tilted. Obviously, it was an impact of the, the night before and the people that were trashing the room, but some of those elements are in there. Now, this episode is actually quite interesting from a, from a spectrum point of view because you do have those wider establishing shots of the show and, and sort of the, the floor, but there are a lot of close-ups. Mm. It continues to have a lot of like layered close-ups, I think more so than we've seen recently where you never see you never not see part of another character as they're talking even though it's focused on one and i do enjoy those little nuggets because those do feel true to the show where no matter who's talking you do get a sense of that emotional connection and this is partly why i think we're also emotionally connected to the show it's it's these shows this shot sorry sort of subconsciously tying us to these characters based on that live reaction and it was interesting to see in the Donna Gordon fight because the camera actually stays quite centered in the middle as they're fighting, as as to not sort of choose sides in a way. And even though it goes back and forth between them, it really doesn't distract us from what's going on. It's almost just sits there while they're arguing and sort of accusing each other and, and you know saying all the things that we that we know they're saying. So there are elements of that that I think that were really good. I will say the the other kind of quick fire scene that stood out, and I, I think this is as much stood out for editing reasons as direction and uh, photography, was the scene where Cameron is doing her punk thing and spray painting and building, and then we're cutting to Joe building his own stage upstairs. And that there was some really classy editing going on in in that scene. And it was exciting and it was intriguing and and it felt, finally like we were seeing all four people in their element at once which we haven't really seen before and that yes. was a, a real high point of the of the episode for me i completely agree with you i think that's really what what stood out above and beyond some of the other really weird elements um another thing that the episode gave us was above and beyond donna sort of really telling gordon how she feels it's a more straightforward involvement from her side right i mean Gordon finally gave her credit. But one of the things that I loved about their confrontation was Donna saying, yes, I kissed him. I wanted him. You know, she's not holding back because of the state of mind that Gordon was in or anything like that. And it was really funny when she was like, we already jumped when mm -hmm. we got married. I mean, this is a partnership. And, and you know, she's always the one wearing the trousers in their relationship in a way. And I think they needed to have this scene because of everything that had built up to it. Because it was a little bit unresolved, but it does still feel a bit like we finally get them in a good place. We, we get them in a good place individually to then that individual success get in the way of them without a clear sort of, well, above and beyond them being married, what else is there? This metaphor of jumping fascinates me because this is not the first US show where this has come up. 
that I that I've seen, and I I mention it a lot, and I'm sorry, but in the West Wing, latterly, and I'm sorry, guys, it was on television a long time ago, so there's a spoiler coming, and you're just going to have to live with that. Uh, when the chief of staff that we have been with for many, many, many uh, seasons has a heart attack and is out of commission and they realize that he can no longer be the chief of staff. The president has to choose a new one. And the way that he invites uh, the person who has up until now been his press secretary to become his chief of staff is by asking her to jump off a cliff with him. And it's such a weirdly negative way <laughs> of saying, will you take a chance? Like, you know, it's not like, you know, will you strap on a parachute even? It's just like, will you just jump and hope that we don't die? Like, it's such a dramatic, ridiculous thing. And it's wonderfully telling that Donna sees the whole marriage as a gamble, as a life or death gamble. And for Gordon, it's only work that could possibly be that big a deal. Like, his marriage is just a thing that he did. And yet yeah, that that metaphor was um, was interesting. <laughs> and it don't, but it was it was very elegantly used. I mean, hats off to Cahill for that one. It was really elegantly used to show the difference in in the way they think about their lives. And I guess part of it is that Donna has, you know, as a woman in the eighties, uh, a working mum with two kids, she has been forced to either not have a have an unfulfilling work life, which she knows she does because she refers to it as a dead end job. But she's been forced to integrate those parts of her life. She's been forced to make her marriage and her motherhood um, part of the whole adventure. And they really, you know, they're big. They're a big deal in your life. They should be a big deal for Gordon as well. And the fact that still, you know, he has he has replicated his DNA twice and he still doesn't see himself as fully invested unless he creates something in in you know when he touches the the case and he goes it's in the metal and it, it kind of a little slight like kick back to close to the metal and just he unless he's created something for work that he can leave a name and a legacy on he just misses all the legacy he's got already it's uh, really fascinating i kind of and i kind of get that just from a, a you know i'm a person that you know very much like yourself and here we are sort of pursuing creative endeavors whether they're related to work or our own passions. But yeah, pursuing a passion and neglect are two different things. And I think the fact that he's not owning up to that, you know, I, I feel like it's another setup for season two around, we don't know where Donna stands anymore. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next episode. But what is she above and beyond someone's wife and and, and sort of booth manager? We've already had Cameron go, who are you, someone's mother? You know, we, we've already had that, the specter of that dangled in front of us for quite a while now. And we've seen quite clearly that Donna is capable of a great deal. And it was it was a lovely moment for her to get her credit at long last when somebody went, yeah, how'd you solve that problem? And he was like, actually, my wife thought of it, Donna Clark, and he gives her her proper name and there's no Susan Fairchild, Fairchild. or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was a that was a really lovely moment just then that she we finally see that realization. But you're right, there's so much, there are so many unanswered questions about Donna that you would want season two to pick up on straight away. Yeah. And I think the last thing for me in terms of the inconsistencies were things like where's boss, where's the rest of Cardiff in relation to the repercussions of what was done? Like, are we just going to assume that boss went to 
jail and took the fall for it? Are we going to assume that Nathan Cardiff isn't going to show up to Comdex and figure out what the hell is going on, knowing that they had booked the booth? I mean, maybe he doesn't even know that the prototype was, was, was actually taken by Gordon in the raid from the previous episode. I don't know. That, to me, felt a little bit clumsy just because they could have given us more hints. It's... I think Cameron does say something and like she's still feeling a little bit of it, but there isn't necessarily a a resolution to or a process in parallel that we're that we're not hearing about off camera. I completely agree. It just it's not a neat episode. I don't think it's intended to be a neat episode. It's obviously supposed to continue to drop breadcrumbs, and we know there's one more left in this season. So we know it can't tie up everything. Uh, or even tie up most things, even if it wanted to. But there are some internal slight, something close to an inconsistency that I wasn't sure about. Um, what I will say, and sorry, this is going off at a slight tangent, but this must have been, in terms of music rights, one of the most expensive <laughs> episodes. <laughs> like, they're on location. They're, I'm assuming yes. they're on location for some of it somewhere. Uh, might not be in Vegas. Um, yeah, yeah. But there's so many recognizable tunes in this where usually they go a little bit off the beaten track and we know that that was partly budget induced. So they must have been making, uh, they must have saved their budget for for a big moment here because there's like, there's Dr. Feelgood, there's um, Zingy Psycho Killer. I'm pretty sure there's Human League at one point. So it's all recognizable tunes. Like this is a bit young even for me. I was only three when all this is supposed to be happening, but certainly things that I remember from growing up. And it was like, right, okay, we're at the end of the season. We can use the music budget at last. Yeah, it was great to hear some of those tunes. And also the score was brought back and they do something really interesting with the score where, you know, some episodes have a lot more of it and some don't. I feel like those emotional links to the score were really solidified in episode seven and eight and probably why I like them so much. Just They just helped build that tension and remind us that this is not a lighthearted show, no matter what we're, what we're being shown on screen. So they brought them back and I thought, I thought it worked when they, when, when I did, but again, kind of, kind of fell flat in the end. I'm glad it was there and I'm glad this, I'm glad it felt like they were outside of Texas, right? And they were in Vegas. They were in this sort of like anything can happen. Um, in fact, I would have loved to see Donna in a casino suddenly winning uh, some money. And that's how they pay for the booth. Like <laughs> some of those like hijinks, Vegas tropes, right? I mean, I'll give it full credit for Joe scamming those guys was ge like yes. genuinely made me laugh. Like when he, when he, <laughs> yeah. the story yeah, that yeah, he yeah. tells about the guy that went up against them and he drove his car into a library, that line genuinely made me like laugh out loud. And then his uh, shrimp at the end of that, it was, it was beautiful and beautifully timed. And, and it, it, I certainly haven't seen everything that Lee Pace has, has ever made, but a lot of the time he doesn't get to be as funny as this. Like he obviously can be, and he has been, but a lot of the time he plays these kind of po-faced characters because he's very handsome and because he's like intimidatingly tall and all the rest of it um but it was really nice to see him get to relax and and like try to keep a straight face that was really really enjoyable uh, so full credit to that moment and well done lee pace for keeping that serious face when saying that 15 pounds is feather light <laughs> this is yeah. when you know the marketing bullshit has been spinning 
for over my 30 God. years. That's like, like my kid weighed half of that when she was born. Like, guys. Well, she's feather light. <laughs> <laughs> guys, let me tell you, I carried her and that was not feather light. Uh, but <laughs> no, I, I, it's a, it's a weird episode. I don't think, I wouldn't ever call it a bad episode. No. It's just an odd one. Um, it has an unenviable and a difficult job. It does it the best it can, but I feel like I just really need to see episode 10 now to remind myself of what happens in that and what it sets up. And just like, I need, I need the resolution of this episode. Like if they wanted to get people to watch the finale, they nailed that. <laughs> so Yeah. And I wonder if it's going to be another um, Cantwell and Rogers episode, just sort of taking it back at the end of the season and sort of like really, I think it is. Okay, great. In fact, Fun fact for you, not only is it a Campwell and Rogers episode, it's a Juan Jose Campanello episode. He's back. Oh. He's back, baby. He's ba I knew he would be. You, I'm Argentinian. You can't get rid of us that easily. Argentina's back in the room. Uh, and, I mean, to give that last episode to somebody so cinematic, I think, says... I don't know. It leaves me quite excited because I, like, I can only remember small... I say small things. I can only remember a couple of dramatic things about it. I can't really remember Same. very much about the fine How details resolved or what happened yeah. yeah same same so i'm really looking forward to to seeing that and again like i agree with you i don't think it was a bad episode by any stretch of the imagination i feel like it will probably go hand in hand with the next one and sort of propel us forward to whatever season two has in store i'll tell you what's interesting is that the title of this episode up here we are which i'm not scottish so please forgive me if i mangled that one but it is exactly as joe describes so he describes the title to the episode when he's in the back of the car and he talks about this festival and blah 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 and then the winners burn everything to the ground it doesn't feel like i know the mac is surrounded by candles <laughs> which i thought was a lovely kind of it was a very uh kind of joe malone touch to the whole mac experience there i was like is he walking into some some like, weird ritual or it's, what, what it's, he's the joining? mac seance it doesn't feel like everything being burnt to the ground. Like it doesn't feel like a victorious stomping. It feels quite sedate, actually, because you've got this thing saying, hello, I'm Macintosh. But everybody kind of oohs and ahs. But it's not a, it's not a, like when Hunt is giving his big speech downstairs and the, the clapping and all that kind of stuff, that seems a lot more victorious and stomping and chest thumping than the Max kind of easing in to take over the conversation. So it's curious that we have this vision in our heads of people burning things to the ground, but that doesn't really happen. No, and it left it open to interpretation to the point where you don't know if it's them, if it's Hunt or the Macintosh. And yeah, I again, it's nice to have these conceptual meanings to the episode titles and in line with what the characters are saying. We know that these are thought out in that way, but... Again, I think it just fell short just because of everything that was going on. And I'm hoping that next episode, I'm not necessarily looking for answers because I think I'm completely fine with open-endedness. I'm just looking for a little bit of momentum or a little bit of a setup to really give us a clear direction as to where this, these people are going to go. And look, we were forewarned, right? We were forewarned in the first frame of the first episode that at some point all functions would begin competing <laughs> until everything collapsed. Right. But now it sort of feels like like we've had this big betrayal that Gordon has ripped out the soul of the machine. He is effectively having brought Cameron along because he said to her, you made it, you made it with me. It's, it's all your idea, whatever. He's then just ripped her out the process just to win. Like it's more, as Donna says to him, it's just more important for him to be right than for him to care about other people. And 
we've had that. He sort of seems to have won, maybe, because we get that one shot of Hunt where he looks a bit despairing because the guy he was going to sell all the stuff to walks past him and doesn't, you know, we sort of get the feeling that they've beaten Hunt. Okay, we know that they're probably going to be beaten by the Mac, but that doesn't mean the giant won't sell in the short term because of the thing the guy said about, you know, having a sports car to park in the window, right? So you can park the Mac in the window, yeah. but you've got to, you've got to sell the station wagons and all the rest of it. But it, yeah, it's this odd kind of, what is competing for what now? Is that if this isn't the finale and all of this has happened, what happens next to show that this is, this process is still going on or is, the next episode picking up the pieces and wouldn't that usually be episode one of a new season? I'm curious to see what happens and how they resolve this. And you're right, we throw Boss out of the picture now. Is it Hunt now, the certain rival? Is he going to be an ongoing theme in season two? It feels like he's being disposed of. Like, I feel like he's played his hand. Like, clearly Donna is never going to trust him again, so they can't go back and rinse any more out of the the affair, nascent affair storyline thing. Like, that's not going to happen. Um, but also we know that Gordon has taken away his machine's selling point by making the giant even faster and more efficient or whatever. So, And we know that Hunt doesn't have any ideas of his own. So the only way that he could come back is if he comes crawling back for a job. And that just like he's too smug for that. And I actually one thing I really did appreciate is that after his conversation with Joe, it cuts to him having a drink. And. At that point, I think in a lesser show, he might have looked a bit chastened or a bit sort of like regretful, but he doesn't. He just smirks and drinks his damn drink. And that, I like that. I like that it didn't try to instill any sort of extra moral or, you know, oh, oh, but maybe it's more complex than that. No, he's just a, he's just a douche that took an idea and ran with it because he could. He's just horrible. Uh, He's just not a nice person with his Canadian wife. Uh, <laughs> Scott Michael Foster, you had one job. <laughs> no, he goes on to be Nathaniel, and Nathaniel absolutely redeems himself. So that's fine. Like he's he's good. Oh yeah, for everyone to know in our in our heads, like all these people are actually connected one way or another. Yeah. So at one Hunt point, and Nathaniel, they're the same guy. I, just I, at one point, it all makes sense. <laughs> I feel like we've come to a natural conclusion to our thoughts on the episode. I'm really yeah. looking forward to just seeing the next one, and my expectations are a little bit lower. We said going in that this one was probably going to be one of our shortest podcast episodes. So, guys, you've got some time back. Use it wisely. Uh. <laughs> Catch up on the other ones. Okay. Well, as always, please get in touch with us on Twitter at TTTYTT. Nope. No? TTTGY. TTT. Hold on. Maybe you should say this. Which confuses me endlessly because I keep wanting to say TTG, which is Teen Titans Go. But right. T-T-T-G-Y-T-T-T. There you go. And I will say the part about you can find this <laughs> on every streaming platform of choice. So thank you so much. Please keep listening with us. We are almost there in the finale. We will be doing a season wrap up where we will get into, yeah, the things that we love the most and a little bit deeper into how we felt. Our endless thanks and love and kisses to the people who've been kind enough to leave us five star ratings and reviews. Those do, they really do make a difference. They help make the the podcast more findable as much as neither of us are actually using, I think, very much Apple equipment. There's an iPad involved to actually make the show. 
uh, Apple Podcasts is where a lot of people find new things. So thank you very much for taking the trouble. And if any of the other formats you're on allow for ratings and reviews, please use them. It makes a world of difference to us. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much. And we'll catch you on the next one.